You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to our podcast live from the ABA section of Antitrust Law Spring Meeting 2018. This is Tom York, and I'm the host for today's episode with my co-host, Anora Wang, which is being recorded on location at the ABA section of Antitrust Law Spring Meeting 2018 in Washington, D.C. Joining us now, I have Professor William Kavasik, which I will address as Bill now, and Professor Andrew Gaviel, which I will address as Andy now, to joining us on this podcast titled, What's the Point of Antitrust? Before we get started, please tell us a little bit about yourselves. Bill, can you tell us a little bit about more of where you work and uh, what what do you do there? I teach at uh, two universities, George Washington University and its law school in Washington, D.C., and I teach at King's College London. I'm also on the board of the United Kingdom's competition agency, the Competition and Markets Authority. Quite a bit there. Andy, uh, please tell us a bit about yourself. I am a professor at the Howard University School of Law here in Washington. I've been on the faculty there since 1989, teaching civil procedure and antitrust. Uh, Before that, I was a litigator for about eight years after law school, and I worked at law firms in Chicago and Denver. Um, I am also senior of counsel at Kroll & Mooring here in Washington. That's terrific. Well, thank you both for joining us. Uh, We're here today to discuss the new policy debate in antitrust. Professor Gabel, Andy, there's an ongoing debate now about the appropriate goal or the purpose of antitrust. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I think to some degree the new debate is an old debate that is taking a new form, influenced by the politics of our time. And the the long-standing historical debate about why we have antitrust laws going back to the trusts and the invention of American antitrust Um, had roots in common law and had roots in concern about large businesses that made it difficult for small businesses to compete. But I think those goals evolved over time. We saw in the 1950s and 1960s a period in which the antitrust laws were, um, were very aggressively enforced, and then something of a reaction. And we've seen almost a generation of reaction. Together, politics, economics, and law have sort of intersected to really reshape what we think of as modern antitrust law. That's terrific. Uh, Bill, do, do you want to tell us a little bit more about uh, your perspective on the, how it's changed over the last, say, 50 years? When you look at the U.S. antitrust statutes, they're very open-ended. They're malleable. That was by design. Uh, it was a remarkable de- delegation of authority to courts and to some extent to enforcement agencies to reshape the system over time. And that's deeply influenced by changes in economic conditions, uh, changes in the political environment. So it's not remarkable that you'd see changes uh, that are fairly dramatic. Uh, I, I took the basic antitrust law course in the spring of 1975. And the standard accepted view about the purposes of the antitrust laws at that time were to put the interests of small and medium enterprises very high on the list. Uh, to take close account of the ability of small communities, local communities, to control their own destiny and have a meaningful role in overseeing businesses. If you asked, what's the importance of efficiency, the view would be, it's important, it's useful, but we don't hesitate to sacrifice it in order to achieve some of these other egalitarian views. Now, that was right on the cusp of a basic change in the economy, because from 1945 to the early 70s, the United States was absolutely preeminent. And it wasn't that hard to say, I'll give up some efficiency in order to get these other goals. By the mid-70s, that's changing dramatically, and that has a big impact on perceptions of what antitrust law ought to do. And so over the last 30 years, it sounds like efficiency has now become one of the, 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 the lodestars, as it might be, of antitrust policy. Is that starting to change? 
Um, well, before we leave that, I think that although efficiency became far more important, we also began to refine our concept of what we really mean by anti-competitive conduct. Uh, and we became more demanding of the theory of anti-competitive harm and the evidence of anti-competitive harm. Uh, what you see over time is that in litigation terms, the burden of production, the burden of pleading, the burden of proof are all adjusted over this generation by the court uh, to be more demanding in terms of showing harm to competition. Uh, so that the idea that all you have to do is show some harm to smaller businesses really gives way to a far more focused approach, uh, one that is influenced by economics and economic thought. And in the context of that, yes, efficiency became far more important. I would say that one of the problems with today's debate is the loss of appreciation that that created something of a broad-based consensus view now over 30 or 40 years. Uh, it is not the view of one school of thought. It is not the view of one political party. Even though we can have differences of opinion between political parties, and there certainly are changes in enforcement priorities, yet we're all functioning within a certain uh, set of assumptions about why we have antitrust and what kind of standards we should um, apply. And what's changed today is a group of people have started to question um, those standards and that uh, group of priorities. Some of it sounds like a throwback to the kinds of values that Bill had mentioned, um, but some of it is new in the context of our time. Um, focused on concerns about large and growing companies that are often described as tech companies. But I think that part of the problem with the debate is that's very simplistic. The tech companies do many different things. They're global in nature. They have grown very quickly. And so we're seeing a societal moment that combined with, as Bill said, the politics of the moment, a new wave of populism on both right and left, has created a context in which uh, the debate, uh, the ground has been fertile for a new debate, and we're seeing uh, quite a lively one here at the meeting. One, one thing I do in class is to try to come up with a list of 10 books that every antitrust lawyer ought to read and be familiar with. That is 10 classics. Uh, two of them were published in 1978. One is Robert Bork's Antitrust Paradox, which was a powerful statement for narrowing the conception of antitrust to focus principally on efficiency under the guise of what he called consumer welfare. Uh, the other was the first volume of the Philip Arita Donald Turner treatise, Antitrust Law, which also addressed the purposes of competition law. Bork coming from the right, Arita and Turner coming from center, left of center, on the question of goals ended up in the same place. Uh, Bork decisively said Congress meant for there only to be a consumer welfare efficiency focus. Uh, Arita and Turner said, we don't really care what Congress said. Uh, the objectives in 1890, in 1914, and in 1950 are so diffuse that they don't provide good guidance for courts in deciding what to do. The real focus ought to be on consumer well-being. It should be principally on microeconomic policy effects. So you have from two directions a remarkable convergence of views from these two very influential authors, scholars, the three of them all together. Uh, and I don't think the change would have happened if it had just been one or the other. It's that the whole group came together at that moment. And in many respects, the modern debate is about whether that consensus roughly formed at the time is the right consensus now, and very boldly to take Arita and Turner. Uh, they have a passage where they say, well, what about the interests of workers? 
What about the interests of small communities? What about the interests of small firms? Their answer is, who cares? Who cares because it's too hard for courts and enforcement agencies to deal with all of these variables? Uh, that consensus, that point of view, is what's being challenged now. And I think for students, I would say it's really useful to go back and see why that consensus formed at the time and what its main assumptions were and thinking about, do you want to flip it over now? So is the debate, once again, uh, consumer welfare versus efficiency? Is, there, is it something more nuanced than that? I think it's something more nuanced than that. Um, it may have to do with how we define consumer welfare, but some of the critics are saying that consumer welfare over time became too narrowly focused on price and output. Uh, economic measures, and that it doesn't sufficiently take into account other interests, uh, as Bill said, whether it's uh, uh, workers or small businesses. But it's also they're arguing that it doesn't take into account sort of quality of life factors that ought to be part of the antitrust discussion. One of the debates now is whether antitrust law enforcement is the right tool. Assuming that we do have different concerns today about wealth inequality uh, in the society, about labor versus um, uh, employers, shareholders versus labor, to the degree that we are seeing a lively debate today about increased concentration, potentially more market power, the debate is whether the antitrust laws have adequately served the needs of our time and whether we ought to revisit them. But I think part of the debate is also whether antitrust laws, in terms of law enforcement, are the right tool to address those societal problems. So even if you agree that those are issues of our time that ought to be addressed, uh, part of the debate today and, and in the halls is whether antitrust law enforcement is the way to approach it. I think it also uh, draws attention to a fundamental question about the role of competition law about antitrust laws, and that is, do people like competition? Do people enjoy it? In their capacity as buyers of goods and services, I think the answer is yes. They like the lower price. They like the better product quality. They like the array of services that come. They like the something new sensation that comes from being a shopper. If you ask them, do you like it in your capacity as a worker? Do you like the instability that comes from industries rising and falling? the effect on your own career, on your family, on your community. They're not so sure. Competition at its root is destructive. It displaces firms. It wipes out certain industries completely. And it leaves the communities that depended on them in the position of adapting or shriveling away. It's a scary process. So if we ask, do we really like it? Antitrust is in the strange position in some ways of saying, the process itself is ultimately good for society because it brings better products, better services, but it does have this disruptive and very destructive effect. I think part of the interesting tension in the debate today is how do you deal with the consequences for people who lose? What do you do for communities that are shuttered because their industries fell to pieces and the jobs and careers that are destroyed? How does antitrust take into account that destructive possibility as well? It's a very difficult, gnawing question that, in a sense, runs through the history of the field and is highly visible today in debates about inequality, advantage, disadvantage, the dispossessed. 
And hearing these comments, it, it, it strikes me as remarkable that we're not too far uh, removed from the Great Recession not too long ago. Is it those factors that have led to this new debate? Um, I think it's those factors, but more. Um, certainly those factors have fed the political moment of our time in which we're seeing, um, like I said earlier, this confluence of uh, both right and left expressing uh, populist strands about the fate of workers, the the simultaneous, as, as Bill said, the simultaneous availability of more variety and lower-priced products, but yet potentially downward pressure on wages. How do we we deal with those as a society? I think the other factor that is really important today, and it was also important at the turn of the 20th century, is technology. There's no doubt that technology is part of what is disrupting various industries. Uh, It is both creating new value, new services, new products, new business models, new ways of delivering uh, businesses and services, but it's also creating disruption. And the the debate about the gig economy, for example, uh, is another example of where you've got people complaining about um, uh, jobs without benefits and independent contractors who who don't have benefits. On the other hand, the gig economy has created an expansion of job opportunities for people to work in, in various flexible ways. So there are many things, I think, that have Uh, influence the moment. And it's actually very traditional antitrust in the sense of uh, the intersection of a political moment, a social moment, an economic moment, an international moment in terms of how global trade is evolving. The debate we're having today about trade policy is competition policy writ large. And it's also related to this perception of value and jobs and how we compete in a global economy. So I think the reason for this debate is this historical moment in which many different forces are intersecting and creating big questions uh, for political and social change. Economic upheaval, you know, as, as Andy's been describing, has, has always been a, a fundamental source of change. It's been a catalyst for a rethink. It was, as Andy said, in the formative period of the entire field in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Uh, the Depression, which begins in 1929, uh, fosters a basic re-examination about whether capitalism, as conceived until then, made sense. Uh, the major strategy for recovery in the first New Deal emphasized central planning, a deep collaboration within industries and with government that was cast aside. But the Depression, in the eyes of many observers and political leaders, was this disproves the logic and rationale for capitalism at all. And I think you're exactly right that 2007, 2008 is a a shock that continues to reverberate reverberate throughout the system. It did two things. Uh, One is to cast great doubt about the sensibility, wisdom, judgment, prudence of business enterprise itself. But it also raised basic questions about the adequacy of public institutions. That is, why didn't you anticipate this? You did nothing to protect us. You brought the economy right to the edge of collapse. And many of us are suffering grievously. And I think the loss of faith in both the institutions of business, the institutions of government, the regulatory system, public officials, I think that loss of confidence, the disrepute into which both were put, 
creates a combustible mix in the political environment uh, that gives populists uh, a strong platform in which to demand in demand demand change. Without it, I don't think you would have seen the election results and the nature of the debate in the 2016 campaign in the primaries and the general election, or in a development such as Brexit in the European Union and uh, in, in the United Kingdom. Uh, it wouldn't have happened without that environment being created. Right. Here is real, uh, really where I have a question. As a law student, I'm also taking European competition law. Sometimes we see some differences here and, you know, out, out overseas. Do you see uh, them contributing anything to this uh, debate? Uh, do they stand any differently on this? Uh, their, their system, in many respects, was designed with goals that anticipated a broader collection of policy concerns shaping individual decisions. Uh, first and foremost is a deep concern about promoting European integration and dissolving boundaries among the member states that would diminish trade. So the preservation of a true common market, the development of economic integration was a major goal, which our competition laws don't really carry on their back. That's a commerce clause concern. Uh, but I'd say there's also a, a deep concern, a greater concern that the disappearance of specific firms is going to have adverse effects that the abandonment of concern for new entrants for small, medium enterprises uh, will beget the kinds of adverse economic consequences uh, that create massive positions of durable dominance, unchangeable over time. Uh, that imparts the system with a somewhat greater willingness to intervene to solve problems, uh, along with perhaps uh, a, a cultural and economic institutions that make the flexibility of the system as a whole uh, somewhat less than we would see in North America, too. So there's not so much of an assumption that somewhere, somehow, somebody will show up to compete against the incumbents. And again, I think you see historical context really at work here. In the post-war world in Europe and in the late 1950s, that goal of integration also had enormous political consequences. It was the hope that they would never see World War again, having seen two in the century. And the goal was through economic integration to create a system that would never go to war like that again. At the same time, here in 1950, we amend our merger statute. We're really focused on the divide between East and West. And part of the criticism of capitalism that's coming from the Soviet Union empowered by the war in some ways, is that we just don't care about small businesses and we are going to crush small businesses and lead ever uh, more so towards large uh, corporate concentrations. And at that moment, we adopt changes to our merger statute that emphasize the fate of small businesses. And that becomes the law and it's interpreted by the Supreme Court for a period of over 20 years uh, before we begin to change direction again. Um, I think in many ways, this is one of the most uh, interesting, in a durable sense, elements, uh, characteristics of antitrust and what makes it such an interesting field. Uh, it is in very many ways political economy. It is about the, the politics, economics, and social um, uh, challenges of the time. And to the degree we do see differences between the United States and Europe and many other jurisdictions, those differences can reflect the historical moments that influence their adoption of, of competition laws. Uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, Bill could, could talk for the rest of our time about the impact the fall of the Soviet 
Soviet Union had on the spread of competition laws throughout the world. Um, until that time... Much better hockey players. Than the much NHL better hockey. Too, that's yes. it. Until that time, very small number of jurisdictions are actively practicing competition law. And today it's over 130. That's an enormous change globally in a relatively short historical period. And it's because of a political change that unleashed forces and interest in capitalism. I think Andy's really uh, pointed to a number of dimensions of what makes for a good competition lawyer today. Uh, We have a tendency to talk about economics, prominent in discussions about what competition law should be, its analytical concepts, its operational tools. Of course, we focus on law, doctrine. Andy's underscored, I think, a couple of crucial points. A really good competition lawyer is a good political scientist and is a good historian and increasingly knows more than a bit about international relations. And yes, some psychology and sociology at the edges wouldn't hurt either. So that the real proficiency in the field demands this multidisciplinary perspective because if you don't understand the forces that have shaped the system over time, I don't think you're in a good position to understand at the moment what's taking place, much less to make a confident prediction about what might be coming along. So the the field, in many ways, is attractive because it has this dimension. Uh, Many of us are social scientists who found a home uh, because it provides such a a, a wonderful array of possibilities. And, And lurking behind it is a chance to study the history, the politics, the sociology, the international relations of how economies function, I think that gives it the zest that attracts so many of us and keeps us in it. And this actually comes back uh, around to one of your first questions, Tom, which is the nature of the current debate. I think one of the things that's misunderstood is when Bill and I talk about understanding the politics of the time and the political context, that's quite different from saying that in individual cases, judges should try to make political dimension judgments uh, to help them decide cases. That's not really the history of of antitrust. There's a lot of pronouncements in Supreme Court cases about how this political context is important to antitrust, Um, but that's quite different from deciding cases based on um, those political dimensions. And I think that's one of the problems with today's debate uh, to the degree there is some... um, some people who are urging that the decisions themselves be infused with these sorts of values, they're asking judges to do things that institutionally they are really not well suited to do. But in pursuing the, the goals that we've talked about, those broader purposes can be served, and to the degree antitrust alone doesn't serve them, we have other tools in our society, everything from labor laws to the tax code. But if those are being used in a way that makes our problems worse, whether it's income inequality, wealth inequality, um, the the loss of labor unions is a factor that people have cited as a a significant factor in in, uh, expanding the, the wealth disparities. If we're not addressing all of those, people tend to look at antitrust enforcement as the solution in part by default. And I think privacy is another good example where right now there's real concern about privacy and data breaches by large um, technology companies. And people are saying, well, doesn't antitrust have a solution? And partly the answer to that is no, privacy laws have a solution. We're just not pursuing them. So there's a danger that in the long term, you actually weaken antitrust law by expecting too much of it and front loading it with many other values that it's really not well suited to deliver. And and a paradox of its success in many respects 
is that we count on it to do more, and we demand that it does more. Uh, once we've shown it can go to the moon, the next question is, well, why not Mars? Why not Saturn? Uh, why don't you take on the entire universe and do more along these lines? Um, and that can, over time, stretch the system in, in directions of doing things that, in some sense, it's able to perform in a limited way, but to really deal with root problems, with best first-order solutions, uh, you take it out of the field in which it's been most effective. So, Bill, you mentioned earlier that the antitrust statutes are particularly open-ended. They're very short, uh, and they leave they, not a whole lot is defined. So did our, did our forefathers want to use antitrust as a field, as, a, as an avenue for this debate? I would say they saw it as an instrument to accomplish a wide array of goals. And they did intend for it to be scalable, adaptable over time. Uh, the legislative debates contain comments about whether, shouldn't we say more about what we're doing? What about some definitions? How about some more operational criteria? And the answer was, the courts will do that. Uh, next to the Constitution of the United States, it's the most remarkable delegation of authority to our federal judiciary to provide the operational content and, opera and upgrades to the system in any other area of the law. It doesn't exist. You can play the trick, and maybe Andy's done it with his students too, where you, you have European graduate students here accustomed to civil law regimes, and you give them the key parts of the text of the Sherman Act, and they look at it and say, where's the rest of it? They're accustomed to a more detailed elaboration, and you say, that's it. Uh, it's stunning to see, but they did anticipate it would be scalable, and they had the view that it would accomplish a wide array of objectives. A number of commentators have suggested, looking carefully at that historical record, that they didn't quite appreciate the trade-offs that you might find. If you asked them, do you want something we would call efficiency? Do you want productivity improvements? Yes, yes. Do you want small and medium enterprises to have a fair chance? Yes, yes. Are you concerned about local communities? Yes, yes. Uh, are you concerned about the way in which wealth is distributed? They had proxies for discussing this as well. Yes, yes. They weren't quite confronted with the idea that maybe if you want the big cost reductions that push prices way down, you're going to have to do it with larger enterprises. I think in part their view was you can be highly efficient without having to be that big. Uh, and later experience shows that maybe that's not quite right. But if you ask them, what do we get with this list? They would have said, all of the above. That's what remarkable. And judges will play a key role in adapting the system in the future to make sure that we do it. I think one of the key, um, key things for our time is to take the, the value of this new populist critique, but to find ways to, to work with it within this flexible system we've been given. It, it's not to say that there are not uh, issues that are worthy of being addressed. In, in many ways, the antitrust laws as they exist today are the most defense-friendly, the most business-friendly they have ever been in history. Um, there's room to have good and honest debate about whether we are in need of a correction. But whether that correction ought to be, all right, let's just find some new system, uh, that I think is, is creating some of the tension in today's debate. Uh, and, and I think that it's going to be filled by people who are going to identify good solutions, 
But when it comes time for agencies to do that, good solutions are done through speeches and guidelines. And um, the same merger statute that supported challenges to mergers in the single digits supports mergers today that are in the double digits. And the difference has been guidelines and guidance over time. There's never been uh, an overruling of the cases that upheld challenges to single digit mergers. What there has been is a change of attitude and a use of the flexibility in the statute. So as Bill says, we have this common law model. Um, it is very different from the civil law um, European model where you have more specification, but it clearly was designed to move in, in different directions. Um, in the early 80s, Frank Easterbrook wrote an article called uh, that was titled, There is No Ratchet in Antitrust. And at that point in time, what he was urging was, just because we've always been very restricted doesn't mean that we can't move in a different direction. And I think that is apt today, although the direction is different from what he was looking at. We have had an enormous change and correction in the direction of antitrust. And it's fair to ask again today whether there's a ratchet that prohibits us from sort of ramping things up in selected areas. But we're going to do it in different ways than we once did. We're going to do it based on more study and understanding of the economics. And hopefully it will be responsive to the political needs of the time. But as we've already said, the mistake would be to expect that antitrust can address all of the needs of our time. It can't. And I, and I think it's important to carefully examine the causes of the move towards greater permissiveness. And I agree with Andy. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a, compared to any other time in our history, uh, indeed, even going back to, say, the 1920s, uh, you find a greater tolerance of business decision-making and discretion than we, than we would have at, a, at an earlier period, with the exception of cartels. The cartel program here is manifestly more powerful than at any time, far stronger sanctions, uh, uh, the 10-year maximum prison terms for individuals. Uh, so, so that's an, been an area that has become progressively more demanding in some ways. But uh, uh, to understand how the whole host of institutions has shaped things, the aversion of our Supreme Court in some ways to private rights of action, the way that's led them to seek more demanding liability standards, evidentiary tests uh, for, for defendants. Uh, in short, a prescription for improvements in the future has to accurately examine how the observed phenomena came to be in the first place. So, Bill, Andy had mentioned uh, gu guidelines and merger policy, and that's all antitrust regulatory policy. What's the role of private litigation in this debate? The, the role of the U.S. private right of action is quite important and in, in a variety of ways. Uh, it is not really a big part of um, the antitrust picture. There are certainly many more private cases brought than government cases, but even so, the number of private cases being brought each year is relatively modest. Uh, on average these days, there's less than a thousand uh, civil new antitrust cases filed in the federal courts each, other, each year. There are cases filed in the state courts, uh, but that's out of a, a full civil docket of 275 or 85,000 cases. So antitrust cases are, are not the, the largest number by far, but they do uh, tend to be big cases. Some of them can be very um, large and demanding cases. Sometimes they wind up being clustered in multi-district litigation cases. So they remain as an important deterrent, um, uh, and in that sense, they, they complement federal enforcement. Here's where I think the complication comes in. 
to the degree our courts, especially the Supreme Court, have uh, calibrated the substance of our law to take into account their concerns about the private right of action, treble damages, discovery costs, jury trials. Um, it has influenced the scope of the substantive prohibitions in a way that is uniquely calibrated for the U.S. system. And I think that that's one of the challenges when you take our law and you go abroad is making sure that other jurisdictions understand that what they're seeing is sort of a, a reserve, a conservatism in our law that reflects worry about the private right of action that may or may not be appropriate to their context. And it means that the doctrines generated in the private cases typically constrain the government where you might think some of the concerns about incentives and effects would be attenuated considerably. Uh, and I think a real challenge for the U.S. system is how to, in a sense, liberate government decision makers, government litigation from some of the constraints that have been imposed because of this fear about how private rights function. The private rights in so many ways have limited the capacity, I would argue, of government agencies to do their job well. It's the same statute. So to the degree the Supreme Court reads the Sherman Act or the Clayton Act narrowly in a private case because they're worried about those elements of private rights, that statute then becomes narrowed with respect to public enforcement as well. And I'm not saying that the Supreme Court's perception is correct about the actual effect of private rights. I am certain the Supreme Court believes it, and it shows up again and again. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. I want to thank Andy and Bill for joining us today. If our listeners have questions or wish to follow up with you, how can they reach you? Uh, my email address is wkovacic at law, L-A-W dot G-W-U dot E-D-U can reach me at agavil, A-G-A-V-I-L, at law.howard.edu. That's all, folks. <laughs> well, this concludes another podcast from the ABA section of Antitrust Law Spring Meeting 2018. If you like what you heard, please find us and rate us in Apple Podcasts. I'm Tom York and my, my co-host, Anora Wong. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. 